So, Phantom X. Oh, God. I thought you liked him. I do. I love him, but he's a whirling vortex of complex continuity. I mean, we can go there if you want, but I don't know if we're ever going to come back. I believe in you. Okay. So, Phantom X is one of the weirder characters introduced in Grant Morrison's already deeply weird run. He's a product of the Weapon Plus program. Technically, he's Weapon 13, race in the world. That's world with a capital W, a capsule environment maintained by Weapon Plus, where time can be dilated or accelerated as desired. He's named after Phantomas, right? The French pulp character. Well, self-named. His given name, to what extent he has one, is just the name of his experiment batch, which is Charlie Cluster 7. Out of code name, he generally goes by Jean-Philippe in reference to Jean-Philippe Law. Who? Uh, the actor from Danger Diabolique, which is where Phantom X got his look and his more benevolent mannerisms. Okay, this is kind of tangled, yeah, but I'm following it fine so far. What's his mutation? You know, I'm not entirely sure. It's never fully clear which of his superpowers are naturally occurring mutations and which are byproducts of Weapon Plus's meddling. Eve is a mutation proper, though, I think. Eva? EVA. She's his central nervous system. She's an autonomous sentient entity, specifically a flying saucer. Okay. He's also got a backup built-in nervous system, but it kind of sucks. He's also got the usual sort of super package, so strength, reduced vulnerability. Some of that's a byproduct of Eva. And there are nanites in his brain that prevent him from believing in anything greater than himself, which creates some problems down the road. Oh, and he's currently three people. What? I'm Rachel Adidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 29th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. This week, we're finally diving back into Uncanny X-Men after a number of detours. This run is sort of a mixed bag of random little story bits. There's not anything big or memorable this time around, but it's just sort of more threads in the rich tapestry that is X-Men. It's worth noting, since this has come up a couple times, this is in the early 80s, and this is really before writers were being encouraged to pace for trades and collections. So a lot of the story here doesn't really break into discrete arcs. And that's actually something I kind of dig. I mean, yeah, it makes it a little hard to break up uh, storylines for episodes, for instance, but everything just feels very organic. There aren't those same kind of starts and stops that modern comics seem to have. Yeah, it feels like it's really fundamentally a serial rather than something that's, you know, a novel serialized for publication. So let's look at the current state of the X-Men. On the team, we've got Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Kitty Pride, and Cyclops is currently off on his honeymoon with Madeline Pryor. So we've talked before about how, like, between major storylines, we'll often have these kind of reset issues. And those often start out, say, in the danger room with the X-Men kind of reiterating who they are, or back at the X-Mansion. In this case, we have kind of a weird reset issue, the kind we don't see very often, which is one where the X-Men aren't really much in it. This issue focuses, this is X-Men 176, and it focuses largely on the honeymoon of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor, which is terrible. Yeah, seriously, Scott Summers cannot catch a freaking break. I mean, okay, so we'll get to what happens with him and Madeline in here, but you remember the last time he uh, he was traveling around in the sea was with Lee Forrester, the ship captain, a little bit after Jean died. The first time he tried to go home with her, they got ambushed by despair, and then they ended up on Octopusheim, caught by Magneto. It's very monster in a box. I, I don't know if fate is following Cyclops around saying, oh, you're trying to be a normal person? Nope! Here's like a random supervillain or something crazy and supernatural. Have fun with that. I would like to point out that this isn't even going to be his worst honeymoon. This is actually his second worst honeymoon, because when he and Jean get married years later, on their honeymoon, they get yanked into the future for 12 years to raise Cable in a post-apocalyptic nightmare. 
X-Men, everybody. X-Men. I'm so happy about finally getting to make Spalding Gray jokes. <laughs> I've been waiting for this episode my whole life. Your whole life? My whole life. And for the three listeners who will get those jokes, I'm sure it'll be very much appreciated. Before I get into what happens, let's talk about the way things are, because one of the things that really struck me in this part of the story Scott is, he's playful. He's carefree. He's like making goofy jokes and being really flurry and he just seems relaxed. And this is so different from a Scott we've ever seen before, even when he was with Gene, really. I think because they were always in a relationship in the context of the X-Men. And what's different here is that Scott and Madeline aren't. The original intention, we've mentioned this before, um, Claremont's original intent was for Scott and Madeline to get married and basically go live happily ever after being people. Unfortunately, for editorial reasons, that's not going to be possible. So first, they have to have the worst honeymoon ever. Yeah. So, second you know, worst honeymoon ever. Sorry. Second worst. They're they're flying around and all of a sudden the plane gets struck by lightning. What are the odds? Oh, no, they're crashing into the ocean, but they're fine. They land. They're good pilots. Yeah. Luckily, it's a seaplane, so they don't immediately sink. They can't actually land it, but they immediately get attacked by sharks. Well, I mean, a shark anyway, but still, OK, struck by lightning and then attacked by a shark. <laughs> I suppose it's possible that one could happen and then the other. It's just you're having a really bad day, whatever. And then the octopus attacks. And then Cyclops starts working on this novel about how he can't go on vacation because the last time he tried to take a vacation, um, his parents died. And, Again oh, with this Spalding Gray. Totally, it's totally Monster in a Box. So Cy- Cyclops started going on monologuing tours and was referenced on The Simpsons at one yeah, point. Yeah, the octopus and- fight is the official peak moment. Okay. That's swimming to Cambodia, but still. <laughs> Anyway, one of the things I want to note about this part is that the narration insists that this creature who has killed the shark that Cyclops zapped is a squid. And it is very clearly an octopus. If any X-Man is going to know about octopi, it's going to be Scott Summers. You may recall, dear listeners, that when he and his previous crappy trip ended up on Octopusheim and met Magneto, he uh, was forced to wear this sort of octopus golden tunic thing that was the height of fashion in the uh, past, future, or present. Uh, yeah, he can't see color, but he could see that octopus. He could just look down and see it covering his body with its lithe arms caressing him like so many tiny tentacled lovers. Wow, that escalated quickly. Speaking of octopus Heim, I do note that the tiny, tiny cutoffs made a reappearance in this issue. Well, hey, if you got legs like Cyclops, I mean, he works out a lot. You might as well show him off, right? One of the things that's a little tragic about this, I mean, mostly it's it's kind of silly and adventurous and over the top. When Cyclops is fighting this squid slash octopus uh, to save Madeline, he's using his optic blast, of course. He loses his red quartz glasses and has to go back to the plane to get his visor and hood, like his X-Men visor and hood, because they give him more control. Which are in one piece at this point. And so it's not really commented on by the comic, but I found it a little bit sad that he's not really able to get through this situation with his wife in his very normal life without bringing back that part of the X. His very normal life with shark attacks and octopus squids. Okay, relatively speaking, in the Marvel Universe, these things happen. Fair Uh, enough. I bet Peter Corbeau could have handled it without a visor. Oh, Peter Corbeau could have, like, just, you know, one punch. He'd hit the shark in the exact right place, and then the octopus, he would just, you know, make friends with it because he speaks the beautiful language of the octopi. Wait, is Peter Corbeau Aquaman now? Well, he learned it in astronaut school. Anyway, so, yeah, it's, and, you know, that is something we're going to see again and again, that Cyclops, he tries to have a normal life, and part of it is just that weird shit keeps happening like this, but part of it is that he's always going to get pulled back by the X-Men, his mutant power that he can't control that's always going to be that tie to this world, no matter how much he wants to leave it. I also want to touch on what happens afterwards because it's so hilariously creepy. So we know that they've successfully fixed the plane and taken off because Xavier gets a letter from them from their honeymoon that includes a photograph of the two of them in bed, which raises a number of questions, the first of which is, why the hell would you send that to someone? Hey, surrogate dad, me and my lady are about to bone. How's it going? Or just did? 
one of the two. And second, who took the picture? Because it's obviously not a selfie. So either they set up the camera on the timer, got back under the sheets naked for the picture, or there was a third party in there actually taking the picture, which they could then got developed because it's the 80s and mailed to Xavier. Okay, wait, so who would the third party be? I, I tried to think of this and all I can come up with is Mr. Sinister. Ah, uh, but you're forgetting the most <laughs> likely option. Peter Corbeau? Eric the Red. Oh, shit. So real Eric the Red or did Scott just bring the outfit? I mean, who knows at this point? Okay, so anyway, speaking of dysfunctional Marvel couples, meanwhile in the B-plot, Wolverine heads to Japan. The last time Wolverine was in Japan was actually very recently, when his marriage to Mariko Yoshida fell apart as it was happening due to the machinations of that total douchebag mastermind. Yeah, the wedding actually fell apart. There, there was never really a marriage. He did return the Clan Yoshida honor sword. And if you go back to the episode that's about the Wolverine miniseries, you can find out more about all of this and Wolverine and Mariko as a couple. Mariko then promptly ships it back to him, and he flies out to Japan to try to return it again. I assume he's just racking up frequent flyer miles here. Uh, I think they're just playing honor hot potato. It makes sense because... Obviously Obviously, after the mastermind thing is resolved, Mariko realizes what's going on and she feels kind of shitty about the whole thing because she treated Wolverine pretty badly, even if it wasn't her fault. So, yeah, she ships the sword back to him. He brings it back saying, hey, what's the deal? If I'm worthy of the sword, then based on what you said before, I should be worthy of you, right? She says, well, yes, but here's the deal. I have to prove myself. And I I love this quote. I'm just going to go ahead and and read this. Um, She's talking about being worried about Clan Yashida's ties to the mob. Those ties must be broken. And Wolverine says, leave that to me. It's my my Wolverine voice. I love your Wolverine voice. It's not Steve Bloom, but it's solid. Well, thank you. And Mariko replies, no, if I am to remain true to my sense of honor, I must undertake this task myself and alone. If you love me, more importantly, if you respect me, you will let me do so. Man, Mariko Yashida is so great. One of the things that we just keep seeing and keep seeing, saw very much in the Wolverine series, is that, yeah, she's in a lot of ways Wolverine's equal counterpart. Yeah, and, and I think it would be easy to underestimate her, and Wolverine sometimes does, because she's this very feminine, very traditional character. But, yeah, really, she knows how to play the game, and she plays it very, very well, and her heart is absolutely in the right place. Yeah, she's a master on her field, and this is, they kind of reach an understanding that they are very much in love, they can't be married yet. They never will be because X-Men can't have nice things. You know, for now, we're good. And then we go to the government where shady government people are doing shady government things. Are there any non-shady government people in the Marvel Universe? I mean, that one FBI agent, I guess Agent Duncan was okay, kind of, although he was sort of shady, too. I don't know. No, there aren't. Okay, especially in Canada. That place is fucked up. I mean, Shadowcat in the alternate future where she's president. She's oh, pretty good. Good point, good point. We see a couple characters we've seen and a couple we haven't. Um, the one, the main one we have seen is Henry Peter Gyrick, a.k.a. the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe. And he's meeting up with Valerie Cooper. Now, Valerie Cooper's a new character in this issue. And she is going to be really important for a really long time, most notably in X-Factor. But in the immediate future, she's going to be putting together a group called Freedom Force. And we're seeing sort of the very beginnings of this. I mean, I feel like we have to mention the Chris Claremont long game in every single episode, but this this is definitely part of it. He's setting up plot lines for way later. Yeah, take it as read that everything is significant. Everything. Always forever especially adam x the extreme every time oh my god um so val's basically saying hey there are more and more mutants out there other countries are getting these mutant teams i mean we've certainly seen alpha flight who are way more governmental than say the x-men are what if america falls behind what could this mean for national security so there are two things i want to touch on here the first is that it's really weird that the government is this obsessively focused on mutants because super powered individuals in the marvel universe are a dime a dozen and mutants aren't really among the most powerful at this point i mean right this is a universe with paste pot pete and stilt man come on everyone has a superpower 
mutants aren't very numerous and a lot of their powers kind of suck. I don't really get why they're the focus, I guess, because they're naturally occurring rather than the byproduct of accidents or space or whatever. And that's actually directly addressed in the scene where Val Cooper is is speaking. She's saying, hey, before we were worried about mutants supplanting humans, you know, the way the different types of cavemen supplanted each other. Which is also weird. But now we should really be more practical about it and think about what this means for national security and day-to-day life. The other thing I want to touch on is the best thing about Valerie Cooper which is going to be revealed much, much later. But she is the sister of Special Agent Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks. I love Special Agent Dale Cooper. Everyone loves Special Agent Dale Cooper. He's the best. Yeah, I remember that scene. Like, it's later in X Factor, I think. And she mentions that her brother had a more interesting case, finding a dead girl wrapped in plastic, etc. Yeah, that he's an FBI agent. That is an X Factor 71. And that's extra weird because the New Mutants watch Twin Peaks. That's a plot point later. The New Mutants watch a bunch of TV and they're really sort of plugged into pop culture, which I love. They talk about Twin Peaks at some point. So I assume in the Marvel Universe, it's a documentary series, maybe. It's reality TV. Oh, God. So that's the sort of third big plot point in this issue. A lot happens in this issue for an issue where it could be described as nothing happening. Meanwhile, Um, in the sewers of New York. So we've met the Morlocks before. We've talked about them in the show, but as a refresher, they're kind of outcast mutants who live in these sewers slash subway tunnels slash bomb shelter. Many of them are less conventionally human looking than the x-men many of them have really kind of useless or dangerous mutations that aren't really that tailored to superheroing and they're led by callisto who we love although officially they're led by storm right now because she straight up stabbed callisto through the heart a few issues back which was awesome she totally did we actually see some of the most of the named morlocks here those being callisto sunder who's just sort of a big dude and mask who can reshape people's flesh all creepily and they show up in the bedroom as near as i can tell of caliban who was the first morlock we actually ever met and who saved kitty during the most recent story and they point out that the reason he saved her she promised she would come back and stay with him and that she has obviously reneged on this promise. Yeah, and I mean, he hasn't really done much about it. Caliban's a very timid dude. He's kind of pitiful in a lot of ways. He's been dealt a super crappy hand by life. And he will continue to be. God, Caliban is a top runner for the saddest character in X-Men. Meanwhile, we cut to Mystique. And Mystique, as you may recall, was for a while the leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She's a shapeshifter. She was Rogue's foster mother. And what we see her doing is killing X-Men. It's another one of those what the hell is going on openings. It, it kind of like the beginning of Days of Future Past in a really weird way. The reader's like, wait, this this is impossible. This doesn't make sense. What's happening? And I got to say, I am not a huge John Romita Jr. fan. I think his art is very okay, but I love the way he draws Mystique. Romita is following up Paul Smith's short but excellent run on X-Men. And Romita's going to be the artist here for a good long time. He gets more of his own voice later, but right now he's not particularly distinctive. The thing I most associate him with that gut punches my suspension of disbelief is that he draws just unbelievably blow-dried and styled hair on everyone all the time. And I know that's not a big thing, but it's jarring. That's that's entirely reasonable. I mean, he's grown on me as an artist over time. I was certainly not a fan at first, but the guy's definitely very, very talented. And he's the first person responsible for like significantly decurling Kitty's hair and sort of the gradual gentrification of Kitty Pride is sad. So this weird alternate world where Mystique's killing everyone, it turns out it's not the danger room because Mystique doesn't have one of those. Although speaking of Kitty, she does have a new costume here. So if you're playing along at home, take a drink. Uh, But it's in fact Arcade's Murder World, which I got to say, great name for a place to hang out. He sort of has robot duplicates of the X-Men with their personalities-ish and uh, Mystique's training herself because Rogue was her foster daughter. Rogue is now with the X-Men, and Mystique refuses to believe that Rogue would have left of her own free will. She's going to go get her back, and she's preparing and preparing and preparing. 
Destiny, who's Mystique's lady part, friend. partner and lover, essentially. It's not text. Not, it's not essentially. It's, it's subtext at this point, but it is textually explicit later. We also have some very heavy foreshadowing with Mystique and Destiny, because Mystique mentions that she could kill all of the X-Men with no problem, except she couldn't bring herself to kill Nightcrawler. And that there was some kind of connection between them was foreshadowed in, in Days of Future Past. But it's not something that's come back up since then. It's played very, very heavily here and will be, continue to be throughout the story. And we actually don't see a full resolution to that plot line for like decades. But we have a couple brief scenes, which I think are important and worth covering. There's Kitty at the dance studio with Stevie Hunter, who's her dance instructor, along with being the mentor of the New Mutants who's having a lot of trouble with Aurora's changes. Now, this is Best Storm, and Kitty, being a dumb kid, doesn't realize that this is super awesome. You commented when we were writing this episode that it's very, very much like the point where you realize your parents are actual people. Yeah, and we, we talked some about Kitty's evolution, you know, from kind of daughter to sister to adult in the last episode. But yeah, we definitely see some of that here with her still struggling, uh, still not being able to handle Storm changing, especially in the face of those other changes. Yeah, she has a lot of trouble accepting Storm as someone who exists outside of context of Kitty. And we also see a goodbye as the Starjammer heads off into space. Scott had been going back and forth on whether to go with his father into space and eventually decided not to. Similarly, Xavier decided this time to not follow Lalandra. So Lalandra and the Starjammers are heading off. We'll see them in a while, but not for a while. And Havoc, I don't think even has any lines in this issue, but also decides not to go, presumably in an attempt to finish his still eternally unfinished because he keeps on getting fucked up by superheroes dissertation. Does he ever actually finish his doctorate in the comics? I'm not actually sure. Or is he just in perpetual everything but dissertation mode? But yeah, with all of this setup done, uh, at this point, the comic kind of jumps into the next part of the plot, which is where this mystique stuff comes back. Specifically, some of the X-Men are at a ballet and they're all, you know, pondering various things they've been pondering as their lives are very complicated. And all of a sudden, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants attacks, as is their way. The short version is, as Kitty is telling Peter about her friend Doug Ramsey, and who we, we will definitely see more of later, and Peter's getting a little jealous, he gets called into battle, and the Brotherhood damn near kills him. Pyro zaps him with fire, then Avalanche blows up a bunch of conveniently placed liquid nitrogen trucks to super freeze him. Man, that's such a specific plan. You know, given that the Brotherhood knows who they're targeting, I kind of buy it. It yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that's true. He ends up super cracked. And I want to go back quickly to Doug Ramsey, because I'm so excited that he's in the comics now. He is one of my all-time favorite characters and i cannot wait to talk about him at excruciating length excruciating excruciating so kitty's freaked out because she's like holy shit my boyfriend is basically totally screwed if he depowers then the wounds from this freezing shattering thing will kill him and if he doesn't i don't know is he gonna suffocate is he gonna is his heart gonna stop beating how does this even work one of the things that i think nightcrawler mentions is that he doesn't even know if colossus actually has a heartbeat when he's in steel form because he checks and he's like there's no heartbeat but i don't know if that actually means anything right and actually that's something that's important that we we always forget uh, nightcrawler is a really good medic like he's had a lot of medical training and nobody ever remembers that about him yeah he grew up in the, as a circus acrobat so presumably you, you pick some of that up i also want to point out that he's with amanda Seft and man every single time the two of them are alone together and not in a fight and sometimes not alone together they are just like down each other's throats speaking of qualities about nightcrawler that are forgotten that dude is a total horn dog and he's really charming about it all the time and i love that about him yeah i mean it's a little creepy that it's with his stepsister well you gotta gotta get past certain things to appreciate it yeah i think that's something that's been lost from a lot of portrayals of nightcrawler which is a damn shame i feel like later versions really really played up the tortured catholic conflicted thing 
I blame the second movie for that to some extent. Sure, sure. But it's a direction that makes sense as a partial evolution. But I feel like there was a huge part of Nightcrawler's personality that just got completely lost, which is about fun and swashbuckling and sexuality. And I think it's also significant that he and Amanda are making out in public. But he's also, this is the first time we've seen him going out to an event without his image inducer on. I believe so, yeah. So, so he is just he's just being blue at the ballet. It's cool. Anyway, everything is dire and terrible because Colossus is almost dying and the Brotherhood then moves on to go take out Nightcrawler. So Kitty, I, I love the way the plot goes here. She remembers that she read in Scientific American that uh, Reed Richards of the, of the Fantastic Four had made an organic thawing ray. Science magazines, they've got to be so much cooler in the Marvel Universe. I remember reading this and being super excited that there was another teenager who read Scientific American. Well, if, any, if anybody would, it would be yeah. Kitty, totally. Because um, my so, parents subscribed to it, and it was awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, my mine as well. So Kitty goes to get it from the Fantastic Four, but they're out off, I don't know, doing something spacey, probably. So she just totally breaks in and steals it. For some reason, she's in a really Fantastic Four-looking costume here. Take a drink. I feel like she just keeps 10 changes of clothing with her any given time to fit her mood. Or she's just really figured out the Unstable Molecules thing, because that's the perfect option for a fashionably mercurial teen. It totally is. During this part of the story, we have a few things all coming together. There's Kitty trying to save Colossus. There's the Morlocks, who are still sort of lurking about and actually reshape the face of a homeless girl using Mask's power, being all mysterious and creepy. Callisto is pissed off at Storm. She wants to screw over the X-Men, so she decides, okay, we're going to make her stick to that promise. The first thing they decide they're going to do is fake Kitty's death. They find a dead homeless kid, and yeah, Mask reshapes her face to make her look exactly like Kitty. Which is so sad and fucked up. It is, and I mean, the Morlocks actually have some interesting dialogue here. You don't often see them on their own. Mask says, ha, this could be utopia, Callisto, the perfect society. We'd still be rebels. We like it. And Callisto replies, too true, Mask. We're outcasts as much because we want to as because we're mutants. Callisto doesn't give a damn about her bad reputation. And so while that's all going on, the New Brotherhood, they are indeed going after Nightcrawler. Totally cock-blocking them in the process. God damn it, Brotherhood. So by the time this all shakes out, after some of the other X-Men show up and everyone fights, they see Kitty having fallen off a building and smashed herself and her rehydration ray or, well, that's the Batman one, you know, the heat thing. And she's dead, and it's terrible! But of course, it's very clear to the astute reader what's been going on. She's been taken by the Morlocks, and they've left this poor dead homeless girl with Kitty's face to throw the X-Men off the trail. If only the X-Men had someone with them who could identify people based on a characteristic other than appearance. If only. And in fact, that's exactly what happens when Wolverine sees Kitty in the morgue. And specifically when he smells Kitty in the morgue, which sounds so much creepier than it is in the comic. Smelling Kitty in the morgue, the James Howell story. Oh, God! Yeah, don't buy that book. No. No, no. The entire point of the Brotherhood's attack is they're not just like, hey, we're evil. Let's go be evil at some people. Is that it's a diversion because Mystique wants to get into the mansion to bring her adoptive daughter Rogue back. Because she figures that they won't send Rogue out to deal with the Brotherhood if it's attacking because she used to be one of them. So they're going to keep her at the mansion. And Xavier is experiencing these sudden psychic attacks from some alien presence, which is actually entirely unrelated to the stuff at hand. It's it's foreshadowing for what will be a for an upcoming 12-issue toy commercial called Secret Wars. We'll talk more about that. But Mystique shows up and basically says, yeah, so we're here to rescue you. And Rogue's like, no, I want to be here. What the hell, mom? Come on. You're not my real mom. And in the same way that we have seen Kitty kind of coming into her own, being her own person, making her own decisions, here's where that's going on with Rogue, as her mother is basically 
kind of negating her agency by saying, no, clearly you could not have made this decision on your own. There's a lot of great dialogue here, but the part I want to pull out is Rogue saying, Mystique, I spent months trying to kill Dazzler. I hated her because she was a mutant with all the things I could never have. She had lovers. She had friends. And she talks about how what she wants is to just be able to be a normal person. And that's something that she needs Xavier's help for. That's a contrast that I want to point out, not with Dazzler, but actually with Cyclops right now, because the scale of being a normal person for Rogue means going to the X-Men. It says a lot about her life up to this point and specifically how much her powers and her lack of control over those powers have defined it, that for her, X-Men are closer on the scale to a normal life than what she had before. I mean, I guess, yeah, if you're growing up with Mystique and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, then after, you know, having to leave your family after your first kiss left your boyfriend in a coma. I get the impression that from what I've seen in the comics, that pre-Brotherhood, at least her life with Mystique and Destiny was pretty generic white picket fence. But And that's the thing. Mystique is, she's a bad person, but she's not a bad person she's at least a pretty good mom she's a person who does bad things for when she's written well at least almost always interesting and complicated reasons x-men has a lot of characters who've gone between hero and villain and she's one of the most consistently interesting and one of the ones on whom moral gray is consistently best done Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And I think that's one of the reasons she's been such a successful character in the X-Men movies, even if she's still pretty different from the comic iteration. So meanwhile, underground, Kitty's being forced to marry Caliban because Callisto has said, you know, we can't have you living in sin, but you you promised to stay with him forever. So we got to marry you. And I love this scene because they're putting Kitty into like the usual punk ripped up uh, equivalent the Morlocks do for everything of a wedding dress. Because the Morlocks are awesome and they're from all of the music videos of the 1980s. Yeah. And she's being helped by these two Morlock women. And I'd like to point out that all of them have visible garter belts like that that's sort of just a thing is that a wedding uniform is that a morlock thing morlocks are basically the backup dancers of the 1980s yeah she, she does in fact run away but she doesn't know where the hell she's going the morlocks don't even try to stop her and she actually ends up running into a character who's going to be very significant in the coming years as one of the official pair of wide-eyed moppets of x-factor yes and this is the green wide-eyed moppet as opposed to the pink wide-eyed moppet the green one is leech who can negate people's powers Artie is the other one we're talking about. I love those two so much. And we get a lot of questions about the ages of the X-Men and how they have or haven't aged. And Artie and Leech are a good illustration of the fact that they pretty much age at entirely story-specific rates. I mean, so so the, the senior generation of X-Men, like Cyclops, Storm, etc., have aged maybe like 10 years over about 40. Kitty's aged maybe a little bit more than that. And she's maybe in her late 20s at this point. Artie and Leech started out as six, and as far as I can tell, are still six. They are Moppet years old, in fact. They just had their Moppet birthday again. Yeah, yeah, no, they are. They totally are. I'd also like to point out that uh, the narration at one point, it, the omniscient jerk face narrator has really backed off at this point in Claremont's run, but it's still there. And he mentions that uh, Leech has retreated to the shadows of the ceiling, which is where he lives. This kid lives on the fucking ceiling? Anyway, they kind of go back and forth. The X-Men show up to rescue Kitty because, of course, they do, having recognized that the corpse didn't smell right. And Kitty is like, hey, guys, you know what? I gave my word. This whole thing sucks, but the Morlocks are right, and I really need to keep my word. And so she tells them to back off. Uh, Kitty's learning lessons about integrity and growing up. Now, the other reason is that she realizes Colossus is dying, and the Morlock healer, uh, one of the Morlocks we've we've heard mention, but I don't think we've actually seen yet. But regardless, we do finally see the healer, and I would like to point out that the healer is totally a wizard. I mean, look at him. He's got, like, robes and big cowl things and skull caps and a giant beard. He's a sewer wizard. 
I love the idea that the rest of the Morlocks are there to rebel against civilization, but he's there because he's a LARPer who just got lost. Maybe his soul is in a phylactery somewhere and he needs their help to retrieve it. I mean, maybe when they have fights, he just tries to play rock, paper, scissors. Never looks at him funny. <laughs> holds up a card that says katana oh oh healer you tried and so you know they reach an agreement kitty's like all right i'll marry caliban if the healer will come and save colossus and in fact the healer does save colossus rogue absorbs colossus's powers to turn him into human form and he would die immediately but the healer's right there to heal him back up and kitty's like all right let's let's do this i guess i'm gonna marry a morlock and spend my life in the sewers from now on god damn it so okay one of the things that makes a character really sad is when they're a good person even when they're in circumstances where most people wouldn't be and that's what caliban does here he's like hey caliban's love is so strong it makes him so crazy he thinks he must let you leave in hopes that someday you will return of your own free will or that he might find courage to live once more in the sunlight To which Kitty replies, I don't know if I'll ever feel that way about you, Caliban, but I would be honored and proud to call you my friend. Now, if this were Beauty and the Beast, she would then realize she loved him and come back, but it's X-Men, so she just goes and jumps Colossus. And he goes and does a lot of crap and later becomes the Horseman of Death and then dies because X-Men. Oh, Caliban. So yeah, that wraps up the Morlock segment for now, and I think this is the last time we're going to see them for a while. Uh, At least until the Fall of the Mutants, which which won't be for a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry, the Mutant Massacre, that is. Um, One of those. But yeah, we do have a little bit more in the story before the X-Men jump into a toy commercial. What I like, we have another sort of uh, table-clearing issue after the whole Morlock thing, which starts with Xavier playing basketball by himself and narrating himself shot by shot. Like, he's like freaking Troy Barnes or something in this. It's adorable. It is. It's so funny. It looks like it's going to be the narrator at first, but no, it's just Xavier, like, narrating. You know, he shoots, he scores, he dodges around, you know, all these famous basketball players. It's kind of a good Xavier as a person moment, which he completely ruins by suddenly getting super creepy hot for storm yeah she shows up to see how he's doing he's like i've never really seen her as a woman before but now i see how how feminine and how desirable she is which okay on the one hand totally inappropriate and creepy on the other hand if anybody is gonna make you want to be a little creepier mohawk storm is the hottest character in the marvel universe i'll also point out that xavier's lady friend at this point is lalandra you know the bird lady with the ridiculous plumage and the like space music video clothes so obviously he's got a type (laughs) speaking of awesome outfits we then cut to kitty pride and the first appearance of her best friend doug ramsey at the mall and man kitty is the 1980s incarnate She's wearing leg warmers over jeans. Her legs are going to be so warm. They have this best buddies thing going on that's really, really charming. I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed their dynamic with one another. Their friendship is so good, and it gets teased as potentially a romantic relationship early on. I think he's kind of got a crush on her, and she kind of thinks about it, but it never actually goes there. It's a friendship that defines especially Kitty as a character for decades. Doug is best known for dying um, midway through New Mutants. It's true. And for having like the least combat useful power ever until they retconned it stupid. I love how much they are like the two nerd kids who find each other. It starts with them getting kicked out of an arcade because they've just been hogging this machine for hours and hours and hours on one quarter because they're so good with it. Well, and in fact, they get scores so high that the machine breaks, which I I don't think that's how it works, even back in the 80s. There were some crappy third-party arcade machines. Well, I guess so. I'd like to think they're playing Lucky Wonder Boy. Speaking of references no one will get... 
Um, so yeah, man, I love them. I love how much of a hint of a larger life and a larger friendship we see that, you know, exists off the page. Mm-hmm. And part of that friendship is them talking about what's going on in their lives. And Kitty, once again, she's really broken up over Storm changing so much and talks to Doug about this. And he, and asks, he doesn't know that she's with the X-Men. Like he, all he knows is that Aurora is this person she knows who's important to her. Yeah. And he asks, you know, being a good reflective listening kind of friend. Well, I mean, how does she feel about you? Has that changed? And Kitty's like, well, I, I don't even know because how I feel about her has changed. And it's a really honest, stark admission. And in fact, the big climax of this issue, what's on the cover uh, with Storm kind of sweeping Kitty up into the air is what happens. Storm says, all right, you know what? This has gone on for long enough. Let's talk about this. Clearly, you've been really upset with me since I started having these changes in my life. I care a lot about you. Let's resolve this stuff in the sky because, you know, X-Men and that's how we do these things. Well, and it's Storm. And because Kitty has been just running away and phasing away every time Storm tries to talk to her. They really go back and forth, and the gist of it is, and I think we should definitely post some of these panels in the As Mentioned post. Absolutely. The gist of it is that Storm's like, hey, I'm my own person. I tried to see myself as your mother, but that's not really fair to either of us. I'm going through these changes, yes, but they're making me feel more like myself than I ever have in my entire life. They're making me feel the world, be in it, not be so distant from it in a way I've never been able to do before. I care about you. If you care about me, please let me be this without just rejecting me. Meanwhile, though, speaking of people going places, Doug also has some news, which is that he has been invited to interview at the exclusive and very prestigious Massachusetts Academy. The Massachusetts Academy. Hey, I remember that place. That's run by Emma Frost, the White Queen. Right. It's the evil Xavier Institute. It totally is. It's the Xavier Institute, exactly. But the sky's really dark and there's a big a big goatee on the front door. Yeah. Kitty's aware of this, but she's like, well, I can't talk about the X-Men thing. So crap, what do I do? She talks to the X-Men about it. And the idea they come up with is, all right, so I'm going to go with Doug. He wants to bring a friend. And Yeah, he invites her along and she says she's not sure because, you know, if If she goes, the White Queen knows her. And so, you know, if things go badly, then the X-Men will be on standby waiting to swoop in and make things right, hopefully. Except they won't be because Secret Wars. And that's where we find out the weird psychic waves Xavier's been hit with are, in fact, the Beyonder, calling him and a lot of the other Marvel characters to these big technological portals. I want to pause for a sec. Do we really need to talk about Secret Wars, Miles? I think we do, mainly because they were a big part of my life when I was a kid because the action figures that came with them were so cool. That is exactly the takeaway you were supposed to get from Secret Wars as it happens. Secret Wars, when I called it a 12-issue toy ad, I wasn't joking. Secret Wars came out of Marvel's licensing relationship with Mattel. And what Mattel basically told them was... um, we need you to stage a big publishing event that's going to get a lot of attention that has all the heroes and all the villains in it. And Mattel had done focus group testing with with kids in their target audience and determined that they responded really well to the word secret and the word war in titles. And so they were like, and you have to call it Secret Wars. Secret Wars is what I think of as like the climax of the nightmare of Jim Shooter's EIC hood at Marvel. Well, and also it's just, I mean, I think like Team America and stuff like that have just been building up to this. This is the most crassly commercial thing Marvel had done at the time. I haven't actually read Secret Wars. I got about half an issue in and I just couldn't do it. If we ever have kids and they're really, really bad, like really bad, like they start, you know, committing arson and shit, we're making them read this series. Oh, man, that's rough. But then child services might take them away to battle world. Yeah. So Secret Wars, we'll talk a little bit about what it is. It's a 12 issue series. Uh, Rachel, like you said, it's a bunch of heroes and a bunch of villains who all get stuck through this portal. And the Beyonder, who's this big cosmic dude, kind of like Q in a white suit from Star Trek. 
uh, says, hey, so you guys all have to fight and whoever wins, I'm going to grant all their wishes. It is literally 12 issues of having all of your friends coming over and having them each pick like three action figures and having them all go bam, 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 pow, explodo, except for more than a year. I cannot emphasize this enough. This crossover ran for more than a year and it kept on getting later and later and later too. I've mentioned Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. It's a fantastic book and talks about this at some length because Shooter just kept on getting, you know, running later and later and getting more and more and more sort of exacting and crazy about the art. It's a weird series. I mean, some consequential stuff does definitely come out of it. Um, we see Spider-Man get the black costume that would later become Venom. We see the new Spider-Woman. We see Magneto shown for one of the first times as a potential hero. Yeah, all of the heroes and all of the villains start out in groups, and Magneto is grouped with the heroes, and the other heroes get really pissed off about that, and so the X-Men decide they're going to stay kind of a third party, I think. I'm, I'm basing this on a Wikipedia summary, you know, and I haven't actually read this series. It's really not worth going into too many of the details. The main X-Men takeaways, which I think are what we're most concerned with are there's the magneto thing him being a, a grayer character which we've already been building toward there's also the fact that colossus falls in love with a healer named zaji she does in fact die resurrecting all of the heroes after i believe doom kills them but when colossus does this he's already been very nervous about his relationship with kitty because he's jealous of her friendship with doug he's he's worried she just sees him as a country bumpkin yeah man at one point he mentions that in siberia they would have been married by now with kids and dude she's 15 i am pretty sure that was not actually a normal thing in Siberia in the 80s. I am pretty fucking certain of that. If we have any Siberian listeners who are around then and would like to let us know in our uh, comments on our blog, we'd love to hear about it. But anyway, yeah, so Secret Wars. So um, Colossus actually breaks up with Kitty as a result of his experience with Zaji and his nervousness. To the rage of many, many readers. You know, I, I kind of get that. I really I really like them together, but character development is a good thing. But yeah, the Secret Wars, the main consequence that it had for me is, like I said, I had so many Marvel action figures. That was actually my first exposure to a lot of Marvel stuff. It was successful at what it set out to do, at least in your case, at least anecdotally. I suppose so. I think I probably still have those packed away somewhere. Oh, man, we should totally bring them out. We should play with them. Bang them together and make Secret Wars 4 or whatever. Yes, <laughs> yes, we should do that. We have the technology. Um, so, yeah, Secret Wars was being published concurrently to the other titles in the Marvel Universe. So it was basically, you know, everyone goes into a portal at the end of one month and they're back in the next month. And meanwhile, in publishing time for the next year, we find out what happened during that time. Which, honestly, if you're going to do something like that is a pretty good way to do it without upsetting chronology and upsetting publishing schedules. The other thing I think is worth noting is Cyclops is in Secret Wars, despite the fact that he's technically not in the X-Men at that point. He just sort of gets yanked in right, because you can't out. have normal lives. No, and then he just sort of gets dumped back into his and Madeline's house, and she's understandably upset, but, you know, dude can't Continuing a long trend of basically exactly that with varying degrees of agency. So the X-Men, gets they get teleported back to Earth, and there's there's an issue after that. And they get, honestly, they get teleported randomly back to Japan instead of wherever they got sucked away from. Yeah, and honestly, it should be really funny, like a dragon that the X-Men were friends with from Battle World and Secret War. Secret Wars comes back with them and all of a sudden is giant and attacks japan and, and it's it's a dragon that lockheed i guess hooked up with during secret wars it's oh, it's such a pointless issue i mean there are a couple funny references about monsters attacking japan all the time i guess and again it's funny but it's also kind of underlined something that i feel like we maybe should have talked about a little bit more a few episodes ago which is that the x-men's version of japan is really kind of a fetishized caricature at this point that is true. That's fair. I mean, I mean, so is their Canada, I suppose. But with Japan, it's it's def definitely taken way further. Yeah, but there are also different cultural overtones to caricaturing and fetishizing Canada and Japan. Entirely true. Entirely true. 
the main consequential thing about this issue is that during the dragon's attack on Tokyo, uh, the X-Men are trying to save people's lives, obviously, and Wolverine discovers a mother and daughter. The mother is dying, having been crushed by some, you know, building parts. Because the dragon attacked Tokyo. Yes, and uh, he promises that he'll make sure that this little girl who's named Amiko is okay. And thus raises her in the tradition of his raising of his own children by just dumping her off on someone and splitting. Yeah, in this case, Mariko. And we see Amiko and Mariko. I think Amiko is actually called Akiko at times. I'm not sure if that's like a, a sort of pet name or something. But uh, yeah, we see them in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries we talked about last episode. And on the last page of this issue, the other big thing is that Senator Kelly finally introduces the Mutant Affairs Control Act. Oh man, we haven't seen that jerk in a while. He's so been it, supplanted by Henry Peter Gyrick. Henry Peter Gyrick, the Walter Peck of the, of the Marvel Universe. Would Senator Kelly be... I'm, I'm trying to think of who he I think he's the be. Bob Dole of the Marvel Universe. Ooh, ooh, that's rough, man. Yeah, but presumably he'll retire from politics and make Viagra commercials at some point. Okay, so I believe that is all the time we have for today, but we do have some questions. I hope they're good questions, because that was a really lackluster issue to end on. It's true, it's true, but you know, it is our duty to cover these things, so uh, go for it. All right, so Showtime Eric on Tumblr asks, just how many kids does Mystique have that we know of? Uh, okay, so it turns out a lot. As I was doing research for this, I'm realizing, oh, wait, there's that person, too. There's that person, too. God damn. I mean, I guess Mystique has lived a long time, so sure, why not? She has uh, a son named Graydon Creed with Sabretooth. And he is, I believe, the only one of her kids who's human. Yeah, he's, he's, he was an anti-mutant activist. He's dead now. He was a total, total jerk. Super jerk. Uh, there's also Nightcrawler, who, as this arc we just discussed has been teasing, is, in fact, her child with the devil. I thought we don't acknowledge the Draco here. Uh, we, we try not to. It's true. Um, but yes, that's with Azazel, who you've seen in X-Men First Class, the movie, if you've seen that movie. But a slightly different version of him. Yes. Um, and now, Rogue isn't actually Mystique's daughter, but she and Destiny raised her as their own. So I think we can count that. Yeah, Rogue calls her mama. I'm going to say that counts. Yeah. Um, and now she also has two more children from the future, uh, one of whom is Raze, R-A-Z-E, R-A-Z-E, who is <laughs> uh, her, her child with Wolverine from the future, because sure, why not? And who in the future has actually killed killed and replaced her like he's he's masquerading as her and running mad rapport it's a clever concept he's creepy and smart yeah and then working with rays is charles xavier the second who is with as you might imagine charles xavier yeah at this point in continuity like current marvel comics mystique and charles xavier have just turned out to have been legally married we're not sure what's up with that either we assume that Brian Bendis is sure, but he hasn't told us yet. Yes. We'll see. So, yeah, uh, that we know of, that we were able to find five. Perhaps and that's, we that's missed specifically one. in 616. Uh, yes, unless you count alternate futures as different dimensions, and then, well, that just gets complicated. Um, okay, so, uh, second question. This is from Pat Myers on Tumblr. What's the deal with Douglock? He was one of my favorites, but I heard he was retconned into being Warlock. That's kind of an awful thing to do. I liked that Warlock and Cypher had sort of a son. Okay, so, first of all, Douglock was never teased as their kid. Douglock specifically derives his name and his appearance from a thing that Cypher and Warlock used to do in New Mutants. So Cypher's mutant power is is linguistics. He can understand, speak, learn any language. And this is the Doug Ramsey we've been talking about in this episode, for those who are unfamiliar. The best Doug Ramsey. Well, the only Doug Ramsey, but the best Doug Ramsey. And Warlock is this techno-organic entity from space, and they would sort of merge into this combined battle form who they called Douglock. The character named Douglock, who called himself that, uh, first showed up during the Phalanx Covenant. And Doug Ramsey at this point had been dead for a pretty long time, and Warlock had died fairly recently. And it looked like Doug had been resurrected by the Phalanx as a techno-organic thing, evil aliens vaguely related to Warlock, that, that somehow this was Doug returned. And he actually had Doug's appearance and a lot of Doug's memories, or at least a lot of overlapping memories with Doug. 
it was not Doug. It was actually just reanimated Warlock with some implanted memories and basically just with his best friend's face, which was sort of the closest thing he had to a human face. And Doug was, in fact, truly dead. Um, This is explored midway through Excalibur in a really fantastic, absolutely heartbreaking arc. We're going to get to that eventually, but yeah, that's the deal with Doug Locke. So you're saying that basically he wasn't that one dead guy come back. He was a different dead guy who came back with the first dead guy's appearance and memories. I don't know if he actually had all of Doug's memories or if he just had, again, significantly overlapping memories because the two of them had been hanging out nonstop for years at that point. It's true. The Troy Knob out of the Marvel Universe. They are. I have this a drawing by Erica Henderson, who's doing current Squirrel Girl that I commissioned that is, is of Doug and Warlock doing Troy and Abed in the morning, and it is the best thing I own. So Michael Conklin emailed us to ask. So, when Mystique takes on another mutant's form, she also apparently takes on their weapons, Wolverine's claws, Cyclops' optic blasts, etc. So this kind of begs the question, why not just morph into Thanos, Dark Phoenix, or some other overpowered entity? Okay, so um, I, I looked around and I actually couldn't find any uh, instances of Mystique using Cyclops' optic blast. But basically, when she first showed up, she couldn't add on any powers or really alter her size all that much. Um, but later, there was a miniseries called X-Men Forever, which uh, served in part to make Mystique and Toad look a lot more like their movie counterparts. So Mystique got all, like, you know, scaly and stuff. X-Men Forever isn't in continuity, though, is it? That was Claremont's What I Would Have Done If I'd Never Left the X-Men series. Ah, but that is the other comic that was called X-Men Forever. This is the first one, just to oh, keep things God uh, confusing. It. So at that point, her powers, she, she was able to get more, like, functional mutations, like wings and that sort of thing. After that, she was killed and then resurrected by the hands, those ninja guys. She went back to her old appearance, but gained even more versatile powers as far as shape-shifting. But there does definitely seem to be a limit to what she can do. So she can mostly do biological functions like, you know, new animalistic shapes or additional body parts. At one point, she grows another set of arms and another head so she can fight in two directions at once, which oh, is rad. that's so great. And so, like, actually, if you've seen the first X-Men movie, when she turns into Wolverine and they're fighting and Wolverine's claws cut through her claws because her claws aren't adamantium, that's kind of how I think of her powers is working. She can do some pretty dangerous stuff, but she's never going to be able to get something truly out there like adamantium or lasers or, for instance, the power of Thanos or Dark Phoenix. I think there are a couple instances, I can't cite them specifically, listeners, if you know of these off the top of your head, and we'd love to hear them, of her using technology to replicate powers of people she's pretending to be when she's undercover for a long time. But yeah, for the most part, I think it's just basically extended biological functions. Like if you're a shapeshifter, you can replicate the effect of Wolverine's claws pretty effectively, not so much optic blasts or flight. Okay, well, I believe that's it for today. Let's uh, take it out of here. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is, as always, recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by the excellent Bobby Roberts, who is also the co-host of Welcome to That Whole Thing and Full of Sith. We have new episodes that go up every Sunday at our website, rachelandmiles.com, on iTunes and on Stitcher. And you can check out that website for extra content. We post a visual companion to every episode, as well as written articles and other material. And again, remember to check back in for the current Stealth and Plain Clothes cosplay contest, which has been running for about a week, and you've got about a week to send in those submissions if you're still interested. And all of this, the show, our video reviews, all sorts of stuff, are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you like our show and it's uh, feasible for you to do so, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And regardless, we'd love it if you would rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. Join us next week for Gladiators, Demons, and Supervillain Prep Schools. As the New Mutants finally get weird. See you then. (laughs) 